Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. Today we're going to be wrapping up a message that was preached by my dear friend and co-pastor Dan Fisher. We began last time on that subject that the Apostle Paul talked about in his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. The subject was the falling away of the last days. Today is part two of a sermon entitled, The Great Falling Away. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. But understand we have always been and always will be fighting evil. And therefore we are to actively redeem the time because the days are evil. But there is a time coming that Paul was referring to that he calls the falling away. Now it's very important that you notice he uses the falling away, not a falling away. Now that's very important when we read scripture and for that matter, any other piece of literature, we have to be incredibly careful how we read it and take note of grammar. When the indefinite article a is used, it means one of many maybe. A car, a house, a person. But when I say the car, the house, the person, that's the definite article. It means one of one, a very specific thing different from all the others similar. When Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking about this great tribulation, do you know how it's worded in the Greek language? The tribulation, comma, the great one. Very different from trials and tribulations. Now, a lot of people will try to pass this off and just poo-poo it and say, oh, well, there's always trials and tribulations. Yes, I would completely agree with you. Well, there's always been people falling away. Yes, but there is also the tribulation, the great one, and there is also the falling away, the falling away. That is very specific from all of the others. Now, how's this going to work? Well, as you see on the screen, first of all, there will be a final falling away in the culture at large. In the culture at large. If you look at Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us a pretty good template of what that's going to look like. Three times in that passage, starting at verse 24, he says, God gave them over. They were so wicked. In verse 24, he says he gave them up to uncleanness. In verse 26, he said he gave them up to vile passions. In verse 28, he says, God gave them over to a debased mind. I was listening to John MacArthur one day, and he said, you know what that literally means in the Greek, debased mind? A mind that won't work properly. Now, I want you to think about it for a moment. Think about the Minneapolis City Council abolishing the police force. That is a perfect example of a mind that doesn't work properly. Who's going to enforce the traffic laws? Are people going to be able just to decide how fast they're going to drive down Main Street? Are folks going to be able to decide whether or not red means stop, green means go, yellow means caution? Is it going to be their own law to themselves? Is it going to be like in the days of Judges, where every man does what's right in his own eyes? 
No one's going to be there at 1 a.m. when someone's trying to kick your door down and you're calling 911 saying, hey, send somebody. Well, we've got a social worker that'll be there in the morning sometime. What's going to happen? I mean, think about the practical implications of doing away with the police force. Now, I realize not all police are great, but most of them are wonderful people who are doing their very best under very difficult, difficult circumstances. My stepfather, who was actually my dad longer than my biological father was, was was a cop all of his life. He'd always wanted to be a cop, and he was a cop. I understand the trials. But just imagine if they're all gone. You don't think the bad guys are going to take advantage of that? People talk about open carry being Dodge City on Saturday night every day. I tell you, my friends, you get rid of the police force, it will be Dodge City on Saturday night every day. You better have a firearm and you better wear it. I saw a young mother this morning over by Brahms. She was out walking. She had a stroller with a little child looked to be one or right about one and their dog with them. And she just walking, enjoying the morning, stopped in the shade of a tree for a little while and then moved on. And I thought to myself, could she do that if Minneapolis is successful in abolishing the police force if she lived in Minneapolis? She'd have to have an AR-15 strapped on. It's a mind that won't work. Now in 2 Timothy 3, when... Paul was writing to Timothy, listen to what he says, yes, knowing this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And then he lists the characteristics. It's almost identical to Romans 1. Now, this is a whole list of them. I'm not going to run through all these, but look at that list of characteristics that he tells Timothy will be characteristic of the culture once this final falling away occurs. I mean, he says, lovers of themselves. We live in a selfie world, don't we? Uh, disobedient to parents, complete rejection of parental authority, uh, without self-control. Look at this list and tell me that does not describe today's culture. Now you say, well, Dan, we've always battled with these. I agree, but now we're battling with them on steroids. There's always been evil, but this is beyond always been evil. So ultimately, there's going to be a final falling away in the culture. But the second point, there will be a final falling away in the church. And that's the one that concerns me the most. You know, when I look at the world, I'm not alarmed by what I see among the pagans. You know what alarms me? What I see in the church. Peter Marshall, different one from the Christian writer, but this guy was a Presbyterian preacher was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate from 1947 to 1949, right up until the time that he died of a tragic heart attack. And when he would get up there to pray for the Senate, he said, I would often look at the Senate, and rather than pray for them, I was moved to pray for the country (laughs) because of the state of the Senate. That's the same position I have with the world. It's not the world that troubles me. They're doing what they do. They're godless, so they're getting away with as much godlessness as they can. What alarms me is what I do and don't see in the church. This is nothing new. 
Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people, God said, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The modern church has no concept of biblical doctrine. Most people, when you mention, I'm going to be teaching on doctrine today, start yawning and start looking for the electronic devices to somehow uh, uh, you, you know, uh, entertain themselves until he finally says, in closing. We don't care about truth. We don't want to know truth. We want to be entertained. We want motivational speakers. We want Christian psychology. We want to walk out of here thinking we're better than we really are, but at least we feel like we're better. And that's what we want, and we want to do it quick. And yet, if a ball game goes into overtime, we cheer. Somebody says, hey, have you seen the newest movie? It's three and a half hours. Oh, that's great, man. I can't wait to go see it. This is the only thing that I know of that Christians go to that they want to hurry up and get out of. And yet we say we love it. Now, I don't, I'm not talking about abusing time and just going on forever and ever. But friends, something's wrong. I talked to a man just yesterday who was right on the verge of weeping, but he was so angry. He attends a church where both pastors, they have two pastors. He said, Dan, I'm not even sure that those two guys actually believe everything in the Bible. And they are telling their congregation you guys have got to get in with this Black Lives Matter thing and you've got to get in, in step with the culture and we're not going to preach against any of these things and we're going to start apologizing. And this guy was broken hearted. When COVID came along, they folded up like a cheap suit or a, a, a lousy deck chair and they only started having church just a few weeks ago and a church that was running over 800 on Sundays is running around 75. Well, what do you expect? When you tell people by your actions that this is not really all that important, it really is non-essential, then they're going to act like it's non-essential. In 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, things are just going to get really great. (laughs) No! Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. This is terrible, but it's true. Listen to what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I really believe that what he meant by heap up for themselves teachers, he probably meant motivational speakers, not preachers. Oh, don't preach to me. Just enlighten me. Well, we all need to be enlightened. But the Bible says that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. I don't quite understand it because God's called me to do this. When I was a kid, He called me to do it. And I don't quite understand it yet. But somehow, there is something that God does through a God-called, God-anointed preacher that will change people's lives that nothing else will. And we need to get back to those things and get rid of these motivational speakers and put them on some kind of television network, get them out from behind the pulpit, run them off, and get a man that knows what God says and isn't afraid to say it. 
and then doesn't apologize for it. Basically, what we have is Christian clubs. Jesus warned us, Matthew 13, that true Christianity always has false Christianity mixed in with it, with his wheat and the tares message. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you go to the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it at all, you know that starting in chapter 2, Jesus addresses seven churches with specific letters. Now, they were real churches in the first century, and he was talking to those congregations. But I personally believe that those congregations were also representative of periods of time in what we call the church age. Now, I don't have time to unpack all that. I'm sure Paul has before. If you're not familiar with that, then check us out later, and we'll explain it uh, a little more thoroughly. But if you get to the last age and the last church, surprise, surprise, It is not the greatest church that's ever existed on earth. It's the worst church. It's the church in Laodicea. And listen to what Jesus says to that church. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. Get left or right. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, And have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. When I was talking to this man yesterday about his church, I said, well, if they keep up with this and they let these two idiot preachers keep preaching, they're going to destroy your church. He said, Dan, we have over $800,000 in the bank and they can run this thing for months before they kill it. Listen to what Jesus said about that church. We're rich. We don't need anything. What was Jesus' assessment? You're not only poor, but you're blind. You are wretched and you are naked. So what do we do? What do we do? You say, Dan, what do we do? Just throw up our hands and we all just say, okay, the great falling away is beginning. Well, first of all, I don't know if it is. I can't tell you where we are prophetically, but I can tell you I have enough brain cells still connected that I can look out into this culture and then I can look at the church and know that something terrible is happening. And it's happened in my lifetime. And to be honest with you, I, I, I am distraught. Now, I know the Lord, I know what happens to God's people, and I'm okay with that, but I am distraught because I look at people sitting in pews. My brother is a preacher. He's, he's, he's not the kind of preacher that Paul and I are, but he's called to the ministry. He's been in youth ministry all of his life. He's, he's in his 50s now, but he's still a great, great speaker. And one day at a particular church where he was preaching... He just gave a simple Romans Road message at the end of the the sermon. He had a guy come up to him afterwards who's a deacon in that church and said, Hey, listen, could you write that stuff down for me? I've never heard that. And I'm speaking at, at a group in town this week, and I'd love to use that. I've never heard that. This is a Bible church. A Bible church. And one of the deacons had never heard the simple gospel presentation. 
And that's in Arkansas. That's not New York. That's not in Oregon. It's in Arkansas. Part of the buckle of the Bible belt. What I'm trying to tell you is that if we don't start to think about where we're living and what's going on around us, number one, it's going to drive us crazy. But number two, we're going to lose our opportunity. There's a great opportunity here because there are people who are sick to death of this and they want to hear the truth. So what does the Bible say that we should do? Two things. One, steer clear. And what do you mean by that? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 5, as Paul is talking about all these people that will turn to all these beliefs of nonsense, he says, from such, turn away. Don't hang with them. I have people come to me all the time. Paul, you've shared. They come to you too when we're speaking at conferences. They say, where can I find a church like your church? Or I go to this church. My pastor won't deal with anything. I say, what should I do? And I always tell them, get out of there. Stop supporting them. There are people right here in this community who have told me, Dan, I'd give anything if our church would do it like Fairview does it. And I always look up and say, well, then why are you there? Well, you know, I've always been there. My family's been there for years. I say, well, if your family were all morons, would you be a moron too? I mean, come on. Paul says, turn away. Get out of there. 2 Corinthians 6, 17. Come out from among them. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. And you say, well, the church unclean? Yeah, go back to what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, which I believe represents the primary general church today. I believe we are living in the Laodicean period. This is why churches have folded over all of these things. And here's the deal. I understand the COVID thing threw us all a curveball and it's terrible and no one wants people to be sick. But what are we going to do the next time? What are we going to do when COVID-20 comes? What are we going to do when COVID-21 comes? What are we going to do if swine flu comes back around? What are we going to do if Spanish flu comes back around? What are we going to do? Are we just going to quit? In this book written by the most brilliant author I have ever read. (laughs) Paul's still working on chapter one. It's just too deep. But he's going to get there. know why I'm taking so many whacks at you today. Well, you are. You're you're a cheap laugh. Okay. There's a chapter in here about a guy named James Caldwell that you've heard about. I want you to listen to just a couple of paragraphs. With threats on his life, a bounty on his head, branded with titles such as rebel priest, high priest of the rebellion by the British and Tories alike. Remember, the Tories were Americans who were cowards and turncoats. Those of lesser resolve would have shrunk back from the conflict, but not James Caldwell. Instead, Pastor Caldwell began going about armed in order to defend himself and his family. 
As strange as it may seem today, it was not uncommon for him to climb into his pulpit on Sundays wearing two pistols while men from his congregation hid in the church belfry keeping a keen eye on lookout for a British raiding party. Once in his pulpit, Caldwell would place the pistols on his pulpit, open his Bible and deliver his sermon. When the sermon was finished, he would put the pistols back in his belt, walk to the back of his church and greet his congregation. Now, you know that. But as he traveled around with the army and ministered to those from the area of Elizabethtown where he pastored, I want you to listen to what, um, what he had to face when he would come back to his church. As was stated earlier, as the British moved ever closer to Elizabethtown, the Caldwells and other citizens of Elizabethtown moved back and forth between Elizabethtown and the small village of Connecticut Farms nearby for safety as the tide of war ebbed and flowed in the various battles and occupations around the area. With his parsonage and church unoccupied much of the time, they were converted for use as a hospital for sick and wounded American soldiers who were often forced to sleep on the floor and eat their meals on the church pews. Consequently, the church itself was often hardly fit for Sunday services. Nevertheless, Caldwell and his congregation worshipped in the building anyway as the congregation was often forced to stand for the entire service since there were no seats Available because they were filled with wounded soldiers, some of them probably with festering wounds, trash all over the floor. Unfortunately, when the British finally occupied Elizabethtown to show their intense hatred for Caldwell and his people, they and the local Tories burned the parsonage and church on the night of January the 25th, 1780. What would we be like? The falling away. There are churches all around us. I'm talking about Baptist churches that are still not even meeting. There's one church within just a few hundred yards of us that won't even start meeting for two more Sundays. Some large churches in Dallas have said they won't start meeting till September. So what are we to do? Well, we're steer clear. And then last, we're to stay the course. Stay the course. You say, what do you mean, stay the course? Well, in writing about all these perilous times and all this that was going to come, listen to what Paul's advice was to Timothy. It's advice for you and me. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. By the way, there is what the Bible calls the hope and the the perseverance of the saints, that God will someday set the books right. Don't think that these jokers are going to get away with this forever. We may not see it in our lifetime, but my friend, there is a payday someday, as R.G. Lee used to preach, and one day God will right the wrongs. So this is what, this is what Paul is saying to Timothy. Now listen to what, it, was it, what his advice is. Here it is. Preach the word. By the way, he didn't say tickle the congregation. He didn't say, give them some more psychology. They're feeling kind of down about themselves. What did he say? Preach the word. 
the instant, in season, out of season. I think that describes James Caldwell and his congregation, don't you? Reprove, rebuke. When was the last time you think in most Baptist churches those people heard a rebuke from the pulpit? Let me tell you what ought to happen in those churches. They ought to stand up and with one mighty voice rebuke the preacher. That's what they need to do. Exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. There's a dirty word. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. I mean, share your faith. Make full proof of your ministry. That's what we do. We stay the course. When I was growing up as a kid, we used to sing this song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what would I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home. In this world anymore. That's our song. That's our song, friends. So what do we do? Back in that spiritual warfare series that I preached when I first came here, I told this guy's story. Let me close with it. This is James Corbett. 1892 heavyweight championship prize fighter. He won that title after 21 rounds. If you've ever boxed, three rounds will just wear you out. 21 rounds. I want you to listen to what he said. He said, fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you wish your opponent would crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never whipped. Never. We thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time. Until then, may God bless you. 
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.